0: Welcome to What's Next, Cornet Global's podcast that puts members on the microphone with thought-provoking, profession-shaping conversations and commentary.
1: Thank you, everyone, for joining and welcome to our webinar on the evolution of facilities management. My name is Sanali Tare, VP of Strategic Content with Cornet Global, and I'm, I'm the host and moderator for this webinar. Before we begin, just a few housekeeping notes. You'll note that your your lines are on mute, so do keep them muted. It'll help us minimize background noise. Um, If you're not one of the speakers, please also have your uh, video turned off. If you have questions, please share them via the chat function, and we'll address them when we get to Q&A. That brings me to the topic at hand. Uh, Facilities managers across industries are finding themselves at the forefront of big challenges, and increasingly, they're playing an important role in both tactical execution and strategic planning health, safety, and security, return to office, sustainability, and business continuity are just a few of the issues that they're grappling with. These are also the themes that run through our discussion today. With that, I want to thank our expert panel for being here to share their thoughts. And I'm going to ask each of them to introduce themselves starting with uh, Antonia Walmsley. I would like to point out that, unfortunately, Michael Hall was not able to join us today, but we did want to thank him for his contributions to the report. Um, so Antonia, if you want to go first. Sure. Uh, my name is Antonia
2: Walmsley. I'm the head of strategy and design for Unispace. Uh, at Unispace, we're a full service uh, strategy, design and construction company. We cover an end-to-end service um, in the design and construction um, ability. So nice to meet everyone.
0: Yeah, Cheryl Karen. I'm America's Chief Operating Officer for Jones Lang LaSalle. We are a, a global uh, corporate real estate company, uh, and my division, Work Dynamics, focuses on the occupier space and serving corporates for Uh, an end-to-end delivery system, uh, including tech, traditional uh, real estate activities such as transactions and lease administration, uh, portfolio assessments, but also the full uh, envelope of facility management services. Happy to be here.
1: Thank you, Cheryl. And last but not least, David.
3: Hi, good morning, good afternoon, everybody. My name is David Kaplan. I'm uh, one of the leaders of the real estate strategy practice at Deloitte Consulting. Uh, so we service um, the entire corporate real estate life cycle, um, supporting owner occupiers and um, other end users with their corporate real estate organization and operating model and facility management strategy and other uh, exciting topics that you all live and breathe every day. So yeah, really excited to be here and to uh, talk about this great topic.
1: Thank you, David. And thank you, Antonia and Cheryl as well. I know we're eager to hear your thoughts. So um, with that, let's go to the first question. Um, What would you say are the hot topics in the FM universe these days? Is it managing costs? Is it leveraging technology, capturing data, managing underutilized assets? Are there other concerns that are keeping uh, facilities managers up at night?
2: I'd say all of the above. (laughs)
1: I would
0: tend to agree with you, (laughs) all of the above, and then some. Um, I think uh, cybersecurity is something I would add to that, Uh, and uh, resiliency, uh, you know, energy consumption, sustainability, space utilization, microgrids, electrification, uh, and certainly uh, you mentioned technology, I think that gets an extra underscore.
3: Yeah, I think we're at this really interesting point where you know um, the 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 landscape of technology beyond just like the traditional IWMS solutions, right? That we all have to you know work in every day. But you know, as you start to think about healthy buildings, sustainable buildings, energy management space utilization and how all of that gets enabled by an ecosystem of technology. That seems to be really top of mind for clients. Like they want to understand their data better. And I mean, I don't know, Cheryl and Antonia and and Sonali, like this, this is stuff that we've been talking about in this industry for 20 years. Right. It's like, when is it going to come to the point where we can really do all of this? And I feel like the, you know, the future is now a little bit right now because of some of the advances in sensor data and, and SaaS-based computing and all these things that we now can take advantage of because, you know, smart buildings are are really advanced and really achievable nowadays. And so that just enables so much of what facility management is trying to do. So I, I agree all of the above, but underscore on technology for sure.
2: Yeah, for sure. I think... I think it also um one of the major things is uh understanding motivation i guess is and understanding how people are what is motivating the, your people because obviously we want to retrain and and, and retain and att- attract people you know to your company so i mean there's a huge amount of sort of data collection on quite functional things but i think you know a key part of that is thinking about what what are people's aspirations and what are the how how do they feel about kind of you know being with the company and you know and occupying a space so i think that, that yeah you know.
0: antonia i think that is a really critical and great call out because it's really about culture and uh, in fm today Culture drives a lot of the decision-making and a lot of the data and the traditional tools that we're utilizing to capture data is actually giving us insights into how to better respond to the occupier of the space. That is one of the critical pieces of the puzzle. And it's different for every organization, isn't it? It's uh, not something that you can homogenize and package up and just put out there. The FMs have to truly understand what's going on inside the building envelope and what that data is telling them about the occupants.
2: Absolutely, and in, and in terms of uh, you know diversity, what you know how how we're incorporating neurodiverse, you know, a, a differently abled, all of these types of things. I mean, it. it facility management has to respond to that as well which you know you know it is about collection of that kind of information there's a huge amount of i guess ways of filtering it (laughs) and i think i think that's kind of you know that is you know one of the key kind of things to solve and to kind of dig into to to really understand the organization that you're dealing with and therefore the spaces that they you need to occupy
0: completely agree
1: That's, um, you know, some great insights there. So um, a quick follow-up question in terms of how data and analytics is being used. um, Are, you know, a lot has changed in the last three or four years. Are some of those parameters and metrics that are being looked at different than what they were before? Would you say that there's been um, a change in that?
0: Well, I think uh, from, from my view, I think, and I'm sure my colleagues have a, a a view on this as well from what they're seeing, but I think it, it really springboards off of what Antonio was just mentioning about, you know, really understanding the culture. We are utilizing technology to give us the data points. Um, we are not soothsayers. FMs don't walk in the door and automatically understand and think, well, I know the way people are feeling today and I know what they want. So I know how to adapt what I'm doing and all of the pieces of the puzzle that I have to balance in order to respond to that. It's actually taking the data and what we're seeing, uh, the things that we're capturing. So things like sensors that are around the buildings, it's not only utilized to do things like help uh, detect and understand uh, traffic patterns or usage of space or um, helping to detect when we need to clean a space, um, how to balance out staffing levels. But we're also utilizing that information to tell us how and where do people congregate and what do we think they're doing when they're congregating? Mm-hmm. How do we adapt the space to respond effectively to that? So the the use of the, the data and the insights is really being leveraged in a way that is helping us to decode exactly what the culture really is and how it's morphing from day to day.
3: Yeah, I feel like um, over the past three, four years, right, with everything that, that, that we've experienced with COVID, Um, And it's put a spotlight in a way on corporate real estate as an industry and as a function where, you know, maybe before it was a little bit like do with what you have, right? Like corporate real estate was always maybe the last one to get fed, uh, especially when it comes to technology investments. Um, But then there was this big spotlight put on all of us, right? It was how many people come in every day? Where do they sit? How far away are they? How often do they come in? How often do they stay? And it's like, we need a lot more tools to be able to manage that. And I think, Cheryl, your your point is is so apt that when you have all of this and we have clients that are, I think, really figuring it out, right? And, and really putting the time and energy to figure it out. It allows them to, to really be responsive to their internal clients' needs. Like I, I have one client that has been able to use their reservation data system to track how often are, they call it their frustration metric. <laughs> how often are people a- looking for reservation rooms, but aren't able to find it? Now that's not necessarily saying that's out of the box of a reservation tool, but it was something that they were able to, to build into their system mm. to be able to say, this is a building or this is a floor or this is a wing that has really high frustration and so it allows them to prioritize if we have one more dollar to spend let's put it to building more meeting rooms in the places that have the highest frustration and so you there's all this whole background of data that you have to be able to track to to your point cheryl and and now we're able to do it in a way that that maybe wasn't achievable before in part because there's this spotlight in our industry, right? All the things we're trying to solve for are top of mind, like they're board, you know, executive level thinking around workplace experience now that maybe wasn't wasn't there um, when this wasn't such a heightened conversation.
2: Yeah, I, th- I think it's an interesting kind of, you know, like you're saying, the focus, and there's a sort of a, not a new focus, an additional focus, I guess, facility management have to do, is, is data analysis I mean this is this is kind of a layer that has we, we're collecting all this data but then the the step into what does it mean really I mean a lot of people are looking to facility managers going yeah that's all very nice but what does it mean because they <laughs> know that so in terms of recognizing patterns uh you know kind of understanding heat maps what that means and po- potentially kind of driving it as a trajectory to what the what next year looks like what the year after looks like and you know what is that you know and making key decisions based on that data so i think you know, it's it's a really interesting kind of shift and i guess a, a skill set that means that um it's a real concentration point in terms of what the information that people want to know is is what does it all mean? And I yeah. think um, and I, and I think
3: there's all, we're talking a lot about sort of the workplace side. Hmm. I think this is also happening in the hard services too for for hmm. any of you on the call who are you know uh, in, in that world, right? like asset management, asset performance, you know especially in some of the harder industries like life sciences or manufacturing you know where you have this critical dependency on infrastructure and and the performance of uh, you know and the mitigation of risks against it that has been a really really big topic in the past two or three years and i think it gets somewhat to cost right you know people want to f- try to figure out uh, what's our asset base look like what's repair and replace decisions and i feel like asset management for those, you know, that, that infrastructure class of assets has been really a focus of a lot of my clients, especially ones that have more of that higher, you know, uh, harder operational environment. And I wonder, you know, Cheryl, you know, your, your all's business is like across all of these spaces, do you see, um, you know, any of those topics sort of rising to to um, to, to the need that JLL needs to support to.
0: Absolutely. Um, very, very, very appropriate. Uh, you know, the uh, I think we've seen an uptick in our reliability business. Yeah. Um, so we have a subset group of reliability engineers and uh, in the last year, that business has really exploded. Uh, I think it's in direct response to what you were just mentioning. Um, I also think that in just in speaking with some of our more... Um, our technical services providers and suppliers that we work with. Um, Think of Carrier, Johnson Controls, uh, et cetera, Honeywell. Um, You know, as we have conversations with them, one of the things that's coming out as a subset of that is and directly correlated to how, when do you uh, replace assets? What's that strategy look like for the future, given the changing space needs? And it's all ties back to, workplace as well. I mean, all of these things are interrelated. It it ties to return to office. You know, the number of occupants you have in a building is is directly going to impact positive, negatively, uh, how you maintain your assets. But the other um, external implication that is coming up more recently is around climate change and that impact on uh, the need to replace equipment in areas where it was either warmer or cooler uh, historically. And the forecast of what that's going to look like is really changing the conversations around asset replacement. Uh, what is, you know, you're not replacing like for like any longer. People that are in climates that were historically cold are now much warmer, and that's driving a lot of different energy needs as well. So um, it's it's pretty exciting. I personally love the hard surfaces, so I could talk about that all day. But it is um, it's really something that is making the conversation around um, asset uh, strategy as a broad-based topic really, really much more dynamic. And there are so many other inputs that you have to think about as you look at that.
3: Yeah, I love this idea of resiliency, right? Mm-hmm. Because in some ways you know our supply chain and our infrastructure over many many years became maybe the term is a little a little closer to brittle than resilient right and it, it was driven by cost it was driven by efficiency it was driven by people saying hey we want to do more with less like hey we don't have funding to replace this how can we stretch it out and then you know i think what you're seeing is maybe a little bit of the pendulum swimming back towards risk management, risk mediation. You know, I have one client that is hyper focused on, you know, evaluating all of their infrastructure across like a dozen different risk parameters and figuring out how to track capital spend directly towards solving and remediating those risk issues. Mm -hmm. And in a way that like before, Maybe some of the are, you know, the, the people listening here can can relate to this, right? Like local capital budgets are often owned by the business, right. right? They're not owned by facilities management. They're not owned by corporate real estate. So how does corporate real estate get a seat at the table to say, hey, I'm sorry, site GM, but you have to replace the roof this year? and when they kick the can down the road and they go well i you know i'd rather spend it on this or that you know I've, i i i have operational needs that i need to solve for when the roof fails you know cuz eventually everything needs to be replaced right like there's there's got to be a, a, a an escalation path to make sure that these risks are 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 understood and remediated appropriately without kicking the can down the road. And so I guess my point is just that swing back towards resiliency and, and it has become, I think, a, a real hot topic lately, Cheryl.
0: Yeah, I agree. And, and I don't know if, if you guys are seeing this as well and maybe this resonates with uh, our audience, but um, I'm finding that the pivot is more, it's less about um, cost savings and more, you know, tied to cost management, cost leadership, having a much more sustainable way of evaluating uh, the asset or a, an entire portfolio and what you're doing around it. So the challenges to our FMs of today is less about oh, you've got to just drive this cost out hard and fast. I mean, you will always have a component of that uh, in you know a variety of economic factors that hit the market you know healthcare is getting hit pretty hard so of course they want to drive out costs but a, a lot more of the conversation we found is less hey i need 10% 20% out and it's more about i need some not only consistency but i need you to be i need a, for us to be in a cost leadership position on how we're going to manage our assets and all the related Uh, inputs to that uh, over the course of the next, you know, 10 years or more. Um, And so I don't know if that, if you're seeing that uh, as well, Antonio or David.
2: I think, um, yeah, we are seeing that a lot. I think the focus, it feels like at the moment in terms of, you know, workplace fit out and that sort of thing is on value and value of kind of not just what it is now, but, because there's so, you know, I think we've learned in the last few years that there's so much uncertainty that there almost needs to sort of have one of those major value, you know, kind of propositions is how does this, how does this move with us? How is this going to evolve? with If we're going to invest now, what is this going to look like in two years, three years time? And we, I think we all talk about, oh, you know, things have to be flexible so that we can evolve. But it's it's really understanding what that flexibility means in terms of uh and level of investment to a, to allow uh, your know, spaces to do that um but then it has to also have the overlaying kind of layers of you know, you can have as much flexibility as possible but you could end up with just what essentially you know it's a conference room with foldable furniture and all this kind of stuff which isn't going to answer a lot of the other questions that, that um you know and the uh, other motivations of people who need to be there and so i think you know that idea about value like what it, you know what is the value and how does that how do we maintain that value in future is much more of a question now than i think you know the budget driven kind of you know,
3: examples yeah it is it is amazing to me how um um uh, my you know my my select group of clients that I work with they're they're still building right they are you know and 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 maybe they've turned their capital budgets from new environments to fitting out and refreshing old environments but they are largely still you know putting money into their spaces and i think the really forward thinking ones are are doing it in a way that incorporates energy management too you know i'm seeing a lot of that like hey if we're going to retrofit this let's put in better sensors let's put in better building management solutions or let's build a layer on top that we can collect all the data um i mean i think that kind of points antonia to your you know how do you how do you create value out of this it's like it's not just refreshing furniture and paint and carpet anymore you know i think that you have to be able to show the return and you know, that's one of the things that that I, I feel like our industry always has been asked, but it's not always immediately answerable. Is like, well, what's the value of a better workplace? Hmm. Like, what's the value of cleaner air for your employees and your visitors? Like, what's the value of better collaboration space? Like, does that help you, you know, move the needle from a revenue perspective? Does it really move the needle from a from a from a margin perspective. But I think Cheryl, your point earlier around culture.
1: Yeah. You know,
3: I mean, I, I'm fortunate to be able to go around to a lot of different client sites. You know, I get to go to different headquarters and different off sites. And you know, you you know, there are companies that you walk into their spaces and you feel it. You feel the culture, you feel how important it is to have spaces that mean something to people. And they dedicate a lot of resources to running the buildings, running the services. And, you know, I don't know if it's a vibe or if it's like, I don't know if it's measurable around like, wow, these are people who work here seem just like a little bit more of a bounce in their step. And, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, you go to places where real estate was the last dollar given. And, you know, it's broken chairs, and it's duct tape. And, you know, that those companies can be really, really successful at a lot of other things. But, you know, it is a little bit of a downer, you know, like, I mean, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't want to, you know, if I if all other things were equal, you wouldn't want to work in a place where there's duct tape on the chairs. So Mm -hmm. I don't know, I think that, Mm -hmm. Gerald, to your point about culture earlier, it's like, that's that's where it really starts to resonate, and that's where the a lot of the value, where the uncapturable value is.
2: Yeah, and I th- I think that's that's true. We I mean, we all talk about the return to the office. Why would you return to an office that is doesn't kind of number one look or feel or or kind of uh, I guess nurture a culture. <laughs> But also one that doesn't function and i think that the, we're dealing with a lot of real estate at the moment that doesn't function i think we've got um you know in the last survey that we did we you know we've got 58 percent of people that we interviewed feel that the the space that you know the office space doesn't actually do what they need to do to facilitate yeah. the work and mm-hmm. i think you know these are the these are the things it won't, it won't be able to drive that culture without having people, you know, <laughs> are, are there. So I think, you know, analyzing and making sure that we have, you know, the data and that motivations again about what people do to create a culture, it, it, you know, without doing that, we, we actually kind of, there's no point having a space. I guess.
0: <laughs> uh, absolutely. I mean, and it's all really tied to uh, talent and the attraction of talent and having that talent be able to engage in the culture once they're in a space and then be able to drive it and innovate from it uh, with others that they interact with. So going back to your point about uh the fact that the the space now has more of a, a it has to be why are we doing what we're doing and having it tied to something that is tangible and you know I think David you touched on the fact that it's productivity, Uh, it could increase productivity. Maybe we can't measure it in every single way, but I actually do think that there are a number of data points uh, that where you can at least detect or understand if you're moving the needle on and, and deriving that from how the space is physically being used. We can track where people are going better than ever these days. Uh, and adjust our systems and tools and our processes and the way that we deliver services to a space, the way we manage a space, um, I think more than ever, we're able to help utilize all of those things to directly contribute to an enhanced experience when you're in the space Hmm. Um, and and driving more productivity and engagement as a result of that.
3: (laughs) I, I see that there's some questions in the chat, Sonali. Do you want us to... Um, tackle those now, or do you have some other topics you want us to cover first?
1: Um, I think it might uh, not be a bad idea to look at them, uh, considering that they kind of relate to what we're talking about right now. So uh, do you want me to read them out? Do you want to read them out? Either way it works.
3: Yeah, I'm looking at the first one from from Jack. Hi, Jack. Um, How do you add conference rooms to a space that's already built? What would you give up? Wow, it's a great question. <laughs> you it's know, I, I'll question. leave it to the design that, you know, we have our, our <laughs> designer here. What would <laughs> you give up Antonia?
1: Um, yeah.
2: I kind of I mean, with in terms of that and particularly conference rooms, I guess under you know, the key thing is understanding the utilization of kind of the the potential univ- utilization of conference rooms. You know, we they tend to be not occupied 100% of the time. So we're kind of understanding that. But also I think we need to abide by the philosophy that no space should ever do one thing. And I think you know now more than ever, we are thinking it can't just be a conference room because of that utilisation. I think understanding, you know, conference rooms can be collaboration spaces they could be project rooms they could be you know like all there are actually quite a lot of different options so in terms of what you're giving up is actually understanding what that workforce does and not just in terms of oh yeah they collaborate here they do that it's it's actually looking at timings it's it's looking at that kind of raw data i i wouldn't want to just put my hand up and say oh get rid of disks yeah. it's, not, it's not, something not that easy <laughs> is it no,
0: no. and I, I agree I was going to just add that um, along the same lines I I can think of two really innovative clients who have had the same challenge and they have created, A space similar to the way uh, antonio was referring it to it doesn't really do one thing it is not a traditional conference room they are uh gathering areas where uh walls can easily be manipulated uh you know space is getting to be very very creative these days and so um you know there's already sort of a white uh, board built into the moving walls and when it's not being utilized as a conference space or more of a traditional conference space that's enclosed, it's opened up for everyone to use. So it's, I think that there are lots and lots of ideas uh, nowadays. I seek the, the support of a wonderful design firm um, and, uh, you know, help to ideate around what is possible for the spaces that you have. It's really exciting and interesting to see how uh, facilities are taking shape in very different ways, with utilizing the exact same floor print that you had when you started. So, yeah,
2: yeah I think it's interesting. Um, we did. Uh, we were looking at conference space in our, you know, one of our studios um, in New Zealand, and we kind of what what how we approached that is actually went through I was like well what do we what does that conference room have to do like and, you know is it a training space is it a event space is it you know formal you know in terms of that configuration and what what we actually came to down to the brief was it was actually a technology enabled lobby space and we we used it in a different way in the ways that way it was designed was that it could function for all the all the, you know, actual activities we needed without being an enclosed room. But that that I mean that was a different case, but it's really about understanding what are the activities that will happen in that space and how can you think of an interesting and sort of way of doing it without potentially building walls.
3: Okay. Awesome. Hope that helps Jack. I see yeah. a question from Ryan. What are some of the top ways companies are driving employees back into the workplace to promote a collaborative culture. Well, there's a carrot and a stick, and the carrot is literally carrots. It's food, right? I mean, like that has been such a... Huge um, topic in the past two years is around food, food service, food delivery, free food, subsidized food. You know, uh, do you make it available in one place? You make it available in lots of places like that has been, you know, like I mean, every every client wants to talk about food these days. I feel like we are a little past the initial rush of like, let's give a ton of free food to get people back. And I don't know about uh, about my uh, you know fellow panelists, but I'm starting to see it swing a little bit more towards the stick, right? I mean, there have been articles in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times recently about major companies basically saying enough, enough, yeah. Everybody's coming back to the office, and yeah. if you want a you know a, a if you want a you know a, a long career at, at at our company, you're going to need to be in the office five days a week. That seems like a really, you know, um, telling shift that, you know, the, it, it's no longer enticing icing and it's more mandating. But uh, what what do you all think?
0: I, I would say that I completely agree with what you've just said. Um, I think that what I would add to it is that I do think that companies are still recognizing that once you... Are in the space once their employees are back in, they they do still I think appreciate and uh, they they recognize the value of an inviting experience of um, something that's going to be engaging for their particular occupants uh, and to help uh, utilize the facility as a culture magnet. I think within that, um, you know, or maybe as an add to that. Many of our clients are also tying being together in the collaborative uh, and engaging way that people work together when their colleagues are there and they're bouncing ideas off of each other. Um, they're utilizing that as developmental career tools uh, to say that, you know, when you're in a virtual environment, there's just rem- a reminder more so that you can't really grow your career from a computer screen. And the fact of the matter is, is that you need to be there so you can get pulled into meetings ad hoc, so that you can be a face in the office to hear conversations that are going on, or you um, can learn and be more engaged directly learning versus when you're just learning uh, virtually. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it's those types of what I think are more traditional things that many of us who worked years and years and decades in the office had the benefit of that um, either people entering the workforce now or those who have been in the workforce for a long time but have gotten comfortable working from home or working from some other place now are being reminded of the real joy and the benefit of having a change of scenery, growing your career, and uh, engaging with your colleagues and having sort of a synergistic way of working that ignites uh, energy, passion, fuels all the things that you love about work when you come into the office.
1: Mm.
2: Yeah, it's it's interesting because I think, um, you know, post COVID, everybody went, oh, it's all about social, it's about collaboration, and let's just only have spaces for that. And I think, you know, now we're coming back to a much more measured and thinking about what that, you know, what that means is that you know, without having those relief spaces, without having kind of the focus spaces, people will stay at home because that's where they need to do that work. The, the kind of benefit of having a collaborative space is that you have to be able to retreat from that to to function. And it's about kind of what what is the task that you're doing at the time you know obviously we absolutely want them to do it in the office because it does uh, you know those ad hoc meetings we know you know that's where the career development is that's where the innovation is and and that sort of thing but you can't kind of have one without the other now and i think we've become to realize that and i think the mandates that are happening now are almost a, a a reaction to this whole social, yay, everybody come back to the office, but everybody, everybody's like, well, but I know I can get work done at home. I know I can do all those sorts of things. So okay. it's sort of a, getting to be a more balanced workspace again in terms of the facilities that you need to do that.
1: You know, while we're talking about talent, there's a conversation going on in the chat, which uh, was something I was going to bring up based on what you all had discussed earlier as well. Um, in terms of how do you... Um, look at the future talent in FM and then what are some of the new skill sets that, that are going to be needed as all this change that's happening? You know, we talked about resiliency and sustainability and data and analytics and, you know, changing technology. I mean, how? what would you say is imperative from the perspective of growing the talent pool for FM um, and then looking for new skill sets or adding to the existing skill sets?
0: Yeah, I, I for for me, this is something I am extremely passionate about. Um, I, I one, I think that from a skill set perspective, uh, technology and the use of and the embracing of it has got to be a number one. Uh, we can't have FMs of the future who are ready for the workplace of the future. Uh, and everything that encompasses if we don't have um, that skill set built in uh, and that we're continuing to evolve it. The other thing I would say is um, having a a mindset of continuous learning uh, and being agile with your learning. You have to be able to quickly pick up uh, sustainability if you're not familiar. You have to be able to quickly pick up uh, um energy consumption and uh, space planning and strategy and resiliency and cyber security and and what all of those things mean as well as some of the softer things like we were just talking about the culture and the uh you know employee experience or the occupier experience things that Fm's historically if you look way back they never had to think about all of those things at once they were all broken up into different jobs or different roles and now the fm is all of those things which is super exciting um but we need dynamic people to be able to embrace those things and take on those roles and to continually train because there will be more forthcoming i don't think this is I think we're just seeing the cusp of things. I think that the role is going to continue to expand, uh, become even more critical than it is today. And we have to prepare young people who are either unaware of the industry or unaware of how exciting these careers can be. Um, We have to get them engaged. And then we also have the other uh, opposite end where we have a, a significant amount of our technical staff that are not going through technical schools and uh, younger people are just not interested. Uh, And we've got a significant aging workforce. Um, So we're gonna have this massive gap that we have to fill. It's already started impacting us, but we've only just seen the beginnings of it. It's going to continually get worse. So we've got to get um, much more engagement, promotion uh, of those types of things um, to, to help bridge the gap of understanding this is a massive career opportunity that can change your trajectory. It can be exciting, interesting, you can work all over the world. Um, but the, that skill set and the, the dynamicism of the people who want that we have to attract to get into the field, it's not going to be for everyone because you really will have to do uh, it'll be a juggling act of things that you have to know.
1: Thank you, Cheryl. Um, David, Antonia, any any thoughts on that? If I were
3: more <laughs> elegant, I would have said it exactly like Cheryl said. <laughs> exactly <definitely> like it. <laughs> Huge challenge, something that comes up every day.
1: All right. Thank you for that. You know, one of the um, questions that I did also have, and it kind of relates back to what, Cheryl, you were talking about um, in terms of growing talent, looking at the future, but how do you see the role of FM as it continues to evolve? Like, what's what's next? What is it that the uh, facilities managers need to keep an eye on in addition to what we? I know we've talked about a lot of it already, but are there any, um, you know, anything that's sort of, you know, out of the left field that we might not have considered uh, that you want to share?
0: Well, I certainly have my thoughts, but I'd like to—I'd like to share the floor with Antonia or or David. If you have something that's burning on your mind, otherwise, I can jump in.
2: I think you're the expert in this one. Too. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> I wouldn't say that, but I—I I would say that um, I don't know that I would say that there is something next and new. I mean, as I commented on before, there are, you know, all of the things that I've already mentioned are things that are going to be, there's going to be a continuum and there will be additional things that will be added to that. I think that, um, you know, agility, learning agility is really the key to it because even if it's something that comes completely out of left field, like now you have to understand robotics. For example, um, you know you you have to have a an inclination to understand that your role starts to encompass anything and everything that touches the occupants and the the envelope of that facility itself or that portfolio if you are over um, a large portfolio of of assets and. If, Changing policy um, is another one that I would say is something FM's never had to think about before, but now HR policies and, um, you know, social and geopolitical, uh, um, you know, impacts are going to be something that FM's will have to be watching out for and immediately being dynamic and strategic enough to say, how is that going to impact what, I'm doing today. That may have an impact. So I need to think about X. That type of critical and strategic thought process is something that has been building over the last decade, but certainly I think it's going to just explode going forward and will be a critical skill set that they will have to have in their toolbox. we, We need people who are um very very agile at adapting pivoting learning uh and being able to connect the dots on things that are happening external to the facilities envelope uh and being able to to understand how do i apply that differently and the same thing with tech how do you apply tech differently the way we use building automation systems 10 even 10 years ago is very different than the way that we're Utilizing and understanding their impacts today. So, um, that that's that's my thought. Maybe Antonia or David, you have something else to add?
3: Yeah, I'll just I'll just say that like when when I look at my clients, when I look at the leaders who participate in Cornet, you know, people come from a lot of different backgrounds. You know, I have I have you know the heads of real estate and facilities management who are former finance people, former lawyers, people from HR. You know, there are people who grew up turning wrenches. Um, There are people who come from more of like the workplace design perspective. And so I think, you know, the point around like what are core competencies, what are core skill sets? You know, people come from into this industry from a lot of different backgrounds. Um, I guess because I work with a lot of um, clients that have large own portfolios, you know, critical manufacturing, healthcare providers, where the, the the facilities themselves are such a operational risk. I find that the, the organizations that are really driving progress and really able to move, you know, to protect and defend, they have leadership that have engineering backgrounds. And you know, they understand how buildings work, they understand how these systems work. When their engineers can come and talk to them, um, they can talk that language. But what I think to Cheryl's point, the leaders have been able to take that core technical know-how and technical, you know, language that they have, and then begin to build on that for. How do I work with HR and IT for being the three legs of the stool? Right? Like that has a lot of softer skills, has a lot of you know corporate professional skills that you know it's just like where do you find that overlap of people who can do a little bit of both? You know, then you start to say, well, what about people who can understand the technology and the cutting edge of the technology? Like that's another Venn circle in the Venn diagram. And what we're finding, I think, is sort of the point is. Once you start adding in all of these different Venn diagram the circles to the Venn diagram, you know that pool of people who kind of bring all of those different skills gets smaller, right? I mean, and that I think is one of the ways that you know I'm, I'm uh, you know I'm, I'm I'm not trying to make this a commercial for JLL, although I you know admire and respect them as an organization, but I do think that is what, why a lot of of places end up building partnerships with you know, real estate services companies because that's their core business is to develop people who can bring all of those skill sets together. And, but what, you know, on the other hand, you know, for me working with clients, you know, I always try to recommend that they keep some amount of, you know, technical skill set in house so that they can play man on man defense <laughs> with the engineers and the vendors and and sort of have that internal view. And so, I don't know. I, that's kind of a long-winded answer to say. I think still at the heart of a lot of what we do is like a te- like a technical persona that you that that needs to have a lot of other skills. But if you have all the other schools without the technical persona, you know that can be um, a place of potential challenges.
0: Yeah, I
2: think too. I think you know in thinking about all these different skill sets, I think communication is probably one. The ability to be able, to, you know, I think back in the day facilities management people were sort of tucked away in a corner looking after, you know, type things and they didn't have a presence. But now they're really at the forefront. So the ability to be able to communicate what needs to be said to a diverse range of people. You know, you're talking, you're talking to vendors, you're talking to um, you know, obviously diverse departments within an organization. You're talking to you know C-suite. These are these are the different the ability to be able to put, you know, facilities management in front of people and make them understand what 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 it is that you're doing, what is how the value of it, um, you know, and talking quite. You know, very technical um, items, and able to make them understandable. You know, these are those are the key thing. You know, that's probably for me, from a, a particularly from a design point of view, and how I you know use facility management, it's it's about not, you know being able to understand what are the priorities, how how are we talking to people about culture, data, all, all of these types of things. It's such a diverse role that sometimes communication can kind of get lost in there somewhere.
0: Yeah, that's a great call out. And I think it just leads me to think about uh, business acumen. So something that encompasses the effective communication, you also have to be able to understand various impacts, critical thinking of what is the risk? uh, How do I communicate that? How do I manage, mitigate it? uh, And how do I... How do I articulate that effectively to the business leader that is under pressure, needs answers, et cetera? So I think uh, that would probably be a a great way to wrap up. That uh, another skill that is not historically what uh, FMs have had to have, but certainly need for the future.
1: Thank you, Antonia. Thank you, Cheryl. I think that's a great uh, uh, great point in terms of uh, how FM is evolving, and uh, you know where where we see it going so one let's take one final question from uh, the chat which i think is uh, interesting and then we can wrap up so um what differences do you experience in fm challenges globally could you differentiate the challenges in americas versus emea versus apac or are they more aligned than we might think they are hmm.
0: Well, Antonio, since you're in Amsterdam right now, yeah. I think you should take that question. I'm sure we all have our opinions I'm on in, it. I'm in Amsterdam with the Kiwi accent,
2: so <laughs> <laughs> I cover a few. A of, I mean, oh, it's it's like the, defining the pers- difference of a personality between America and you know, <laughs> and and Europe, which is made up of you know millions of countries. So, um, I think. Each region, and I I I hate to kind of lump APAC together in terms of what they do, Australia and New Zealand are probably doing yeah, doing things differently to Asia. It's such a big question. I think, I mean, it, you know, it, it is the stages in which we're progressing um, you know, in the evolution, I guess, of facilities management in terms of uh building stock, in terms of you know, uh, workplace innovation, those types of things. It 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 is, and it, it, I feel like it's at really different stages in um, that process. Um, Australia and New Zealand seem to sort of push workplace design from a design point of view quite far ahead of uh, the Americas and um, Europe, which I think. They're small and nimble and kind of get on with things because they they don't have a choice. So, um, but yeah, it, it comes down to uh, the there are completely different personalities and it's really hard to actually define into one go. I mean, Cheryl, you probably yeah. have a good idea.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think it's just bridging off of what you said that the differences are. It depends on the the. Subtopic that you are um, referencing with regard to FM, if you're, if it's more of sustainability, I mean, as Antonio said, there are so many different. We are at different maturity levels. We mm-hmm. are at different regulatory levels, um, which drive a lot of the behavior. There are cultural nuances where. Things are important, and you know, experience, for example, is cutting edge in Asia. It is so much further behind in the Americas, uh, and it's maybe somewhere burgeoning in between, depending on the country that you're talking about in uh, EMEA. So it really depends. There are so many nuances. I think what I would say by and large, the one thing that unites us all and that we all struggle with is really just getting back to the talent piece of it. I think across the world, I don't know anywhere where someone is saying, we don't have that problem. Every single country, every single location, as it relates to our industry is struggling in some form or fashion with the type of talent that is needed to combat and to attack and effectively manage through all of the changing landscape Um, and being able to do that dynamically within the confines of, again, all of the different cultures and all of the different uh, needs and priorities and regulatory uh, uh, permissions or um, allowances that we have to manage uh, in the industry. I think talent is the one thing that really uh, binds us all, but it's every region is very different depending on what topic you're talking about and there's probably few that are all 100% aligned like like talent. David, do you have anything on that that we haven't
3: covered? Well, you know, I I, I um I do think that there's a difference in um, market maturity too, right? Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of um, the size, scale and scope of Vendor partners in some of these areas, and in the in the way in which that they engage, right? Like, you know, um, America has a very robust service provider market, um, and they bring tremendous skills and talent, and you know, technology and playbooks and all those things. And, you know, I, I mean, Cheryl, you, you certainly know this better than I do, but, you know, other parts of the world don't have that same capability. So, you know, you start to talk, talk about from a model perspective, you know, how do you try to cover, you know, if you have a very distributed global network, which a lot of our, you know, uh, our our people on the call might have, you know, how do you begin to leverage a global like, you know, a global standard, a global model while delivering with local vendors. And um, because, you know, if you go to some smaller countries, that's just what you're going to be dealing with.
1: Yeah, that's
0: right.
3: It's a good point.
1: Thank you, David. Uh, and on that note, I think uh, it's a wrap. I mean, thank you so much, uh, Antonia, Cheryl uh, and David. Uh, great conversation, uh, great uh input and insight on the chat as well. That always adds a, adds a whole lot to our conversation. So thank you for that. Um, and thank you to uh, Newmark, Unispace, JLL, and Deloitte for uh, you know, uh, helping us with the report that we did um, for the webinar. We can't do these uh, events without uh, the support. So thank you. And hopefully we'll see you at a future webinar. Um, and a good uh, morning, afternoon, evening, wherever you are. Thanks, everyone.
0: Thanks very much, everyone.
3: Yeah, great to meet you all. Um, Hope to see you at the summit.
1: This
0: concludes this episode of What's Next. Want to record a podcast of your own? Have an idea or point of view you'd like to share? Visit cornetglobal.org to learn more.